It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So we've taken our relationship to the next level. We have sung karaoke together for the first time. Yeah, I think I, I think I shouldn't give up the day job. Well, I think that's true, but you know, wasn't it an enjoyable experience? It was. I was quite sort of intrigued by it because you had never been to a little booth karaoke no. setup before, no. and f- f- at first, you had the air of uh, in a film where an alien yeah. has taken human form and they're studying human behaviour yeah. to see what it looks like. But I think you really got into it. I did. I thought your wife's voice is amazing. Yeah, well, you were quite good too. But she... I think I have gusto, but she has actual talent. She's really got talent. Yeah. And Her... Her um her rendition of We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel was amazing. Yeah, it's her party piece because she knows all the words, so she, yeah. she turns away from the screen while she's doing it. And and you and her... I always find this with songs, though, that you never quite know what the words are until you then look at the words on the screen and then you're amazed by the words. Yeah, you you were having, you yeah. had that a few times. You had it with the Proclaimer's Letter from America yeah. as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, you sang a beautiful duet of Je ne regret rien, I yeah. thought. My beautiful is... <laughs> With nice. my wife. Yeah. I, I also feel like I saw you over, because you type in the songs to see whether yeah. they're there or not. I think I saw you look for both The Red Flag and This Land Is Your Land. Am I right? Correct. I didn't think they had either of they them. They didn't did they? have either of them. But I really love that. That maybe, was very much you conforming maybe to stereotypes. Maybe there's a sort of lefty karaoke slash make your own sandwich shop that we could set up <laughs> together. No, this I'm more you interested do, in. You could do make your own yeah. sandwich and lefty karaoke. Yeah. I mean, we, maybe lefty karaoke rather than say, make your own sandwich. No, let's get. I mean, I'm you know, if you, you're willing to let me have the ca- lefty karaoke, yeah. I'll go along with the make your own sandwich. Okay. But yeah, we did a good Billy Bragg as well, didn't we? We did. Yeah. So it was uh, it's very enjoyable. It was the reason we were out was it was the leaving do from yeah. Alex, who's called Alex Feisbrice. So I said the first song should be. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, with the words replaced with Vice Price Baby. Yeah. And you had never heard that song before. No, look, I'm, I'm, popular culture is, is a sort of unfamiliar to me. <laughs> Only the 90s. You're very good on the 80s. Mm, yeah, that's true. And actually, the 80s were in partly my pub quiz. So tell us what your pub quiz so was. So I was in Liverpool. Um, I did a pub quiz last year at this event called The World Transformed, which is a series of events that happen at Low Body Conference. And uh, we did it this year. You very kindly gave me um, questions for what I call the citizens of nowhere round based on Sarah's experience of the citizenship test. Basically, people couldn't believe how difficult the questions were. For example, uh, what was the tenure of Sir Robert Walpole, Britain's first prime minister? And you've got multiple choice, but I mean, it's so difficult. Yeah. Uh, how long did the Romans stay in Britain? I mean, they just are, people found it really flummoxing. And if any listeners want you to come and do a pub quiz in their local quiz, are you... Uh... Mm, I think I might be just once a year. <laughs> Uh, so what we're going to be talking about this week, it's robots, isn't we're it? We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. Wow. We're having trouble getting our head around artificial intelligence. Because you it's and I. so huge. It sort of slightly makes your head hurt, actually. What's your favourite science fiction robot? R2-D2. 
Strong choice, I think. I would have had you down as Marvin the Paranoid Android. Oh, uh, that's better. Actually, I was felt put on the spot. Actually, that's a better answer. <laughs> um, no, Marvin, definitely Marvin. Yeah. What's your favourite? Um, I, I, I would have gone for R2-D2, but I'm going to say K-9, the robot dog from Doctor Who. Mm, Davros? Davros was sort of half Dalek, half... I don't know what he was, but it was, there was some kind of meaty being in there, wasn't there? <laughs> you think he doesn't count? I don't think so. Anyone else? It was more of a sort of glorified mobility scooter. Yeah. I mean, maybe the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself, or I suppose it's a book. Ah, yeah. But it's a form of artificial intelligence. It the is. thing I always used to love from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was the Babelfish. Mm. You know, you could put the fish in your ear and it would translate everything. And we're not far off that now with Google Translate. We're not and, far. And translation is one of the things that AI could make a huge difference with i mean it's almost everything and then there is a point at which computers become as clever as humans which is i think singularity singularity or agi and then after that they become more intelligent i feel like you are more um you are more cut out for this subject than me i I think somehow you've just got more of a handle on it well i just think from from what i've been reading about it we need to be thinking about it now yeah like how what do we build into artificial intelligence so that it doesn't go rogue in the future Mm, that's good and as well as that we are going to be joined by comedian amy gledhill who's going to be sharing some ideas so what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful is i yesterday i went with a friend to the pub and we each have a two-year-old child so my son gene was running around so i'm following around the pub and and he gets to a certain point and he starts going beetles beetles and i'm very proud of him because about a week ago he said beetles for the first time wow. i've not been drilling it into him yeah. he's just sort of picked it up by osmosis anyway i thought he was just sort of randomly saying yeah. it in the pub and i said to my friend oh yeah he's just started saying it and he's getting frustrated he's going no beetles beetles and he points and there's an embroidered cushion of the beetles from the sergeant pepper how era. amazing so he, he can identify be- that the beetles is a from child who's well eras. brought up absolutely so that's my reason to that cheerful. is so fun that's definitely it's great isn't it cheerful so what's yours? So my reason to be cheerful is not a reason to be cheerful, but it is uh, something worth noting, which is that my friend Paul Greengrass, who is director of United 93 and the Bourne films, has done an amazing film, which I saw on Monday night, um, called July 22nd, uh, which is about this terrible massacre that happened in Norway by this man, Anders Breivik, uh, where he killed over 70 people, including, I think, 69 uh, young people. Uh, on this, who were who were part of a sort of labor Norwegian Labour Party training week or weekend uh, on this island, and it is an incredibly moving and brilliant film. It's out on Netflix on October the tenth. I think we'll try and have Paul on the podcast, but I think he sees Breivik as the sort of father of the extreme far right or the sort of originator of the extreme far right, and I think it's quite a thought provoking film. It's it's really a film about how Norway handled this. And is it a documentary? No, it's a dramatization, right. but obviously very close to the to what actually happened. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
We are delighted to be joined by author of Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, Max Tegmark. Hello. Hello. It's a pleasure. It's going to be strange somebody as qualified as you are talking to uh, a couple of people as ignorant as Ed and I are. We're, we're really struggling to wrap our heads around even the basics. Well, you know, you have to realize that if you feel you don't fully understand everything about how the mind works, <laughs> nobody else does either. So okay. just relax. <laughs> so, so let's start with artificial intelligence. I mean, I, th- I think I know what it is, but can you, can you talk me through the pure definition of it? Sure. Artificial intelligence is simply non-biological intelligence. And w- what is intelligence itself? Well, I, I define it simply as the ability to accomplish goals. And the more complex those goals are, you know, the more intelligent. Many people... I know, think of intelligence as something mysterious that can only exist in, in biological organisms, especially humans, right? But you know, from my perspective as an AI researcher and a physicist, information is simply a certain kind of information processing performed you know, by elementary particle whizzing around according to the laws of physics. And there's absolutely no law of physics saying that those particles have to be like carbon atoms inside of cells, inside of brains. Then there's a GI do you want to tell us what AGI is? Yeah, artificial general intelligence is the holy grail of AI research ever since its inception and it's something we don't have yet. Today we have instead artificial narrow intelligence that can do very narrow tasks like arithmetic or memorizing huge databases or playing certain games like Go, much better than humans. But we don't have AI today that can... AGI. Yeah, any kind of... Inte- of artificial general intelligence, which can get good at anything given enough time, the way a human child can. So, so what is an example of the first bit of technology that we would have interacted with that uses AI, even in a basic form? Most people sort of subconsciously define AI as that which machines cannot yet do. <laughs> so as soon as machines can do something, they'll be like, oh, that's not real intelligence. But by my definition... Any kind of intelligence technology is really artificial intelligence. It's just a spectrum of tasks. Uh, pocket calculator was a very, very narrow, pretty lame kind of AI. Now we have AI that can drive cars and do slightly more impressive and, and, and broad things. But it's a continuum. There's no magic line in the sand. And Max, why is say, a driverless car not a GI? Because a driverless car still cannot beat you in a game of chess. It can't even hold an interesting conversation with you in the pub. You know, It can only do this one thing really, really well. Artificial general intelligence means that the AI can do everything as well as humans. Not just drive and talk, but any job. For example, writing my book, You know, an AGI should be able to do it at least as well. And am I right in thinking that that's what people call the singularity when you get to that point? Well, not quite. Oh. If you think AGI, the idea of a machine that can do all our jobs better, is sort of crazy science fiction sounding, the singularity is one level more wild, sort of on top of that. Because if we actually succeed in building AGI, then by definition, all jobs can be done better by machines, which means that Google and other companies can replace all their AI developers by AIs. So further progress now in AI development can happen way faster than the typical human research and development timescale of years, right? And this is what raises this controversial possibility of an intelligence explosion where 
recursively self-improving AI just rapidly leaves human intelligence far behind. This is the idea of a singularity. And the end result of this will be what uh, Nick Bostrom has called superintelligence. So singularity means not just that computers can do it as well as humans, but better. Is that right? That's right. And the singularity is sort of the very rapid idea that this could happen very rapidly by the AI quickly improving itself over and over again. And that name was coined originally because in physics, you know, a singularity inside of a black hole or whatnot is, is something beyond which you have no clue what happens. Similarly, if we have a technological singularity here on Earth, it becomes hard to predict what's going to happen after that. So what is a positive vision of the future for human beings if, if we get there or when we get there? Well, everything I love about civilization is the product of intelligence. So obviously, if we can amplify our own intelligence with AI, it opens up the possibility that we can use this to solve today's and tomorrow's hardest problems. Like I visited a friend recently in the hospital who was told that she had uncurable cancer. But what does that even mean, uncurable? It just means we weren't smart enough to find the cure, which undoubtedly exists according to the laws of physics, right? If AI can help us all be healthy and, and lift everybody out of poverty and, and so on, we can have create a fantastic future in principle. And then there's all these problems like, you know, what, what sense of purpose would a human being have if you have machines doing everything for us at a level that's that's better than we could do it for ourselves? Right. Can I just ask you a question though on that on that point, which is so um, AGI in the case of the incurable cancer would mean that we just what we ask a machine to try and cure the cancer, or the machine just decides on its own to cure the cancer, or what would AGI applied to that situation mean? Well, the artificial general intelligence wouldn't be better than a human, but you know, maybe it could work for 10,000 years in a night by running faster or something and make more rapid progress. Most likely, though, having just AGI would be a super unstable situation because people would rapidly use that to make much smarter things like superintelligence, which could just blow away all our human research and actually find cures. What we do with that, you know, that's all up to us, really. I, I think the interesting question to me is not to sit here and try to predict in our crystal ball what's going to happen, but to ask, what do we want to happen? Do we want to be some kind of zoo animals, you know, with a nanny AI <laughs> keeping us happy with our computer games and smart drugs? Or- I like the sound of that. Je- Jeff likes <laughs> the sound of that a lot. Um, but, but Max, at the moment, and I forgive me, I'm being really sort of basic here, but just so I understand, at the moment we've got systems for computers looking for patterns in cancer diagnoses and all that but it it can't kind of start to sort of go away and find a cure that that's too sort of that's the general intelligence so it's not coming up with its own experiments and it's not having its own ideas and and it's just doing what we tell it to is that right that's right that's right you have the world's best uh company in pursuing artificial general intelligence right there in london google deep mind they're doing fantastic stuff already saving lives with with, um, cancer diagnosis and and things like this. But that AI is still really, really dumb because it doesn't understand anything about the meaning of what it's doing. It's just pattern matching. Am I right to think that the paradox here is that computers can think much faster than us, but they can't think for themselves, basically? Not very much, and not yet, exactly. 
And how far away are we from them being able to think for themselves? This is a wonderful controversy the experts really disagree about. Some think it won't happen for hundreds of years. But most AI researchers in, in recent surveys have said that they think it will happen probably within decades. So, you know, within your lifetime, because you sound pretty healthy, I think. And then the, then the question is, okay, what do we do with this? You know, uh, it can have the power to solve all our problems and, and create a great future. But we humans also know, you know, that uh, power has to be used responsibly, right? I'm optimistic, actually, that we can create a great future with AI, but it's going to require that we win this race between the growing power of the AI and the wisdom with which we manage it. And this is really what I what motivated me to write this book, because I feel we're being way too sloppy with this sort of wisdom part. The wisdom race you talk about, don't you? Yeah, you know, with less powerful tech, the way we won the wisdom race was always by learning from mistakes, you know, invented fire, screwed up a bunch of times, and then invented the fire extinguisher. But learning from mistakes isn't a good idea once technology gets really powerful. Like, just yesterday was almost the 35th anniversary of... uh, World War Three, but this guy Stanislav Petrov happened to be in the right place at the right time and stopped it. This was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. No, this was thirty-five years oh, ago. Sorry. This was more recently, and we, but we had another oopsie like that during the missile crisis. Right. So we don't want to just be like, "Oopsie, Russia and America accidentally ruined the planet with nukes." But let's just learn from this mistake. It's much better to think through what can go wrong in advance to make sure it goes right, and that's the strategy I think we should take with AGI if we ever build it. And I'm really happy, actually, that there's a very strong movement now among AI researchers to do exactly this kind of long-term thinking, not because they want to scare people like silly Hollywood movies, but because by thinking through what could go wrong, we can make sure it goes right. So, so this is talking about in a precautionary way, because this technology may be decades or hundreds of years off, thinking about what's Im- embedded in, into it. I, I've heard the word values um, spoken of in this way, Give, giving it values so that there aren't catastrophic outcomes. Even in the shorter term, like next year, you know, we're putting AI in charge right now of ever more decisions and infrastructure that actually affects lives which means we really need to transform today's buggy and hackable computers into reliable AI systems that we can trust. Because otherwise all our shiny new tech you know, can malfunction and harm us or get hacked and be turned against us. And then this value stuff becomes super important once you have ma- machines that affect us more. You know, even this horrible tragedy just a few years ago where this German Wings pilot flew his plane into the Alps, killed over 100 Europeans, right? That was an example of where the computer actually could have stopped it. Uh, it had the map of the Alps, it had GPS, it knew everything. But what the pilot did was he told the computer to lower its altitude to 100 meters and the computer just said, okay, because it hadn't, nobody had bothered to teach the computer that you should never fly into mountains. We need to switch mindsets then. Whenever we put any kind of intelligence into a machine, we have to make sure that it at least understands kind of kindergarten ethics, the stuff we all agree about. And then gradually as machines get smarter and can understand more of our value as well, then we need to teach that too, just like with our kids. You know, we don't make our kids learn all these martial arts and handling power tools without teaching them right from wrong. 
don't you have to think of so many contingencies? Because if you told an aeroplane to never fly into a mountain, it would then think, okay, I can fly into a city instead. Can I ask a sort of set, a question which is related to that, which is, are we, I'm sorry to sound like the skeptic in this, but, but it's more because of my ignorance. Are we, ever going to get to the point where the computer can think for itself about whether to fly into a mountain or not. I mean, that feels it's always going to need a human, isn't it, to say, don't fly into a mountain because hum- computers don't have emotions. Or no, sort of- I, I, think you're, I think you're falling into the trap of, of carbon chauvinism there again. You know, this right. idea that the, uh, you can only be smart if, if your information processing is done by carbon atoms inside yeah. of cells, inside of brains. I, I think even our emotions are also a type of information processing. And if we build machines that can be as smart as us, it's, it's our choice whether we want to actually also make them have our kind of emotions or not. It might be better to build the machines that um, capture sort of the best of us and skip the road rage and all that stuff. Isn't there a problem in that uh, values are different? What I consider to be my values might be different to what Donald Trump considers to be his values for example although personally i think they you know they've got some similarities <laughs> <laughs> oh well that's a that's going to be a very important problem maybe decades from now but in, we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good and in the meantime forget to program our airplanes to never fly into fixed objects you know even cars today for crying out loud uh, most high-end cars have some kind of forward-facing camera and collision detection system they should know to never ever accelerate into people but yet we've had a number of horrible terrorist attacks, right, even in London, where people have done exactly that. You know, that can be stopped by teaching cars just the kind of ethics you would teach to a four-year-old. And that's not very controversial ethics that there's any you know, great philosophical disagreement about. Is there a problem here in as much as if, if I was a terrorist and I wanted to build a nuclear bomb, it's very difficult for me to get my hands on some plutonium. But if I'm somebody programming a computer with a set of values, I'm, I'm just one person telling it what to think. Yeah, that's why it's so important that whatever values get programmed into uh, tomorrow's cars, for example, aren't just some sort of trade secret that nobody knows, but that this is something that regulatory agencies can look at and see, hey, yeah, this one has this goal to not drive into people. This other car, on the other hand, says hit Norwegians because it's created by some angry Swedish guy. <laughs> You're not somebody who's saying clearly, you know, we should we should kind of stop, try and stem the tide of AGI. What is the other positive? You talked about curing disease. What are the other positives that could come out of it? Basically, every problem that we've failed to solve we've failed on in some level because we haven't been smart enough to, you know, to find the solution. Uh, disease is obviously one, but as you know, we, we would love to have better technologies for getting out of the climate pickle that we're in, uh, uh, help lift people out of poverty without trashing our environment at the same time. There are so many technologies you know, we have now that we didn't in the past, which is great, like penicillin and antibiotics, because humans invented them. Imagine if we can accelerate the scientific process of invention of good things with machines. Clearly, there's a great upside. But what I'm saying is we can't just produce all technologies as fast as possible and have this weird new religion that says that all technology will always be helpful because that's not true. You wouldn't walk into a kindergarten, you know, and give them a box of hand grenades and say, hey, kids, just play with this because they don't have the wisdom to handle that kind of powerful tech. And 
Well, what we want to do is not try to slow the tide of technology, but rather accelerate progress of this wisdom development. That's why it's been so much fun to work on bringing together AI researchers and other thinkers, for example, the conferences, breaking it down. Like what kind of AI safety research needs to happen? How can we get funding for that? How do you figure out how to make things less buggy, less hackable? How do you figure out how to make machines understand what humans actually want? And what we've found is there are a lot of hard problems here, actually, that many scientists are eager to work on, but there's really not much funding. And I think if, if governments who fund making the tech more powerful also just automatically fund AI safety research, then um, we're going to be in much better shape. That, that was actually where I was going to go next. Can I make an analogy with the financial crisis? I mean, part of the financial crisis, the problem of the financial crisis was that the politicians and governments just didn't understand what was going on. I mean, that's true to a even higher power when it comes to this these questions, isn't it? as I, probably I'm proving in this conversation. I mean, doesn't politics and government need to get the races with all of this stuff somehow? That's true. Although I have to say the UK is a lot better than certain other countries I won't mention. Theresa May, you know, recently in Davos, I think it was, talked about the need to make ethical AI. Right. Uh, whereas on this side of the pond, not, neither Clinton nor Trump even mentioned AI a single time in their presidential debates, even not even when they discussed jobs. I think, so I think... It'd be really great if UK, the UK can be a leader there and um, not just making the tech powerful, but making sure that it becomes beneficial for everybody. Is there any other country you'd point to that's doing this really well, where the politicians are really at the races? Hmm. A problem we have in the West is that almost no politicians have technical backgrounds. Yeah. But as long as they're willing to listen to those who do, things can be fine, I think. <laughs> I was really good at this game called Manic Minor when I was 12 years old. That doesn't quite count, does it? Well, you're, you're doing a great service just by getting people talking about yeah. these things again. Because I think, you know, this question about what do we ultimately want to do with our technology uh, beyond just you know, curing diseases and so on uh, is a question almost nobody talks about still. You know, what, what, what kind of society are we actually hoping for if we succeed and build AGI? You know, I get students coming into my office pretty often here at MIT asking for career advice, and I always ask them what future they want. And if, if all she can talk about is that she might have cancer or might have been run over by a truck or something, that's just terrible strategy for career advice, right? I want her to come in with fire in her eyes and be like, this, this is what I want to do. And th th then we can talk about challenges and how to get there. But I think we humans as a species are making exactly that mistake every time we go to the movies and watch yet another dystopia of some horrible future, like Blade Runner or whatever. The best thing we can do is think hard about the high-tech future we're excited about so we know what to sort of steer towards. That's why I wrote my book, to get people thinking more optimistically about the future, because if you have no clue what we want, we're not going to get it. We have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, where I, uh, due to a chain of events, um, appointed a benign supreme leader. If I was to appoint you, I don't know, Minister for Technology. AI. AI. Um, what would be the first thing you would do on day one? I would increase funding for technical AI safety research. I would make sure that uh, we tweak the tax laws just a little bit to make sure that the huge growth in wealth that's going to come from AI helps make everybody better off. I would go ahead and get an international ban on building lethal autonomous weapons. 
so we can make sure that AI gets really challenged into good stuff that makes the future better. And finally, I think I would maybe do some kind of national contest to have school kids and everybody else just brainstorm about what kind of high-tech future they're really excited about. Sounds great. Yeah. I think you've got the job. I think so. And while we've got you, is there any chance you could ask one of your students to develop an AI program that could play Ed at this game, Manic Minor, on the Sinclair ZX Spectrum? I used to have a Sinclair Spectrum. Oh, yeah. you see, with the same generation, maybe. With 1,024 bytes of memory. I was so excited. I delivered enough junk mail to be able to afford it when I was, I think... Uh, 16. Yeah, I loved it. Max Tegmark, thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much. So listening to that is Duncan McCann, who leads a digital economy research program at the New Economics Foundation. Duncan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What do you make of all that? It's very interesting. And we really need to keep an eye on this long term future that general intelligence and potentially the singularity could bring us. But for me, there are a few things that the way that I see the world doesn't really chime in that we can just wait for AI to solve all of our problems. You know, first of all, I don't think we live in this deterministic kind of mechanistic world where the only reason that we can't solve all of our problems is because we don't have all the information. And that if only we knew all the information in the same way that, you know, if you know the position of the planets using Newton's laws, you will be able to predict where the planets are in 100 years time. I don't think it's the same thing for society and the complex systems that we live in. A lot of the big challenges that we face today, again, are not challenges where we don't necessarily know the answers, or we can't see a way out of some of these problems. And climate change could be one, but you know, in the UK, it could be the housing crisis, it could be inequality, you know, all of these things are real structural problems in our society. Uh, we kind of know what we need to do. The problem is, is galvanizing the political will, the, the, the incentive to really make things happen. So, so I think whereas AI will be transformative and applied properly can be hugely beneficial to society, I don't think it is the information that we're lacking is the reason that we can't solve some Presumably it's partly a question of the tools plus the political will. So, you know, the fact that as we discussed on an episode a couple of episodes ago, that the cost of renewables, the cost of you know, wind, solar have come down so much, battery storage, yep. you know, that doesn't solve it on its own, but it makes it much more viable with the political will. Yes. Now, now we're also talking about the future of AI, AGI, but, you know, we're also living in the present when AI is an increasing issue. Talk to us a bit about that and how we should be thinking about that. Yes, I think what's really interesting is that AI today is really encountering, kind of encumbering into more and more of our lives. So uh, all of our online activity is all moderated by algorithms. Uh, Each page that we surf is uniquely curated for the person viewing it based on the profile that that has. You see different ads, you see it structured in a different way. That's kind of the the, the less impactful end because in the end, it doesn't really matter what ads we have. But now AI and kind of automated decisions and algorithms uh, are moving into much more consequential uh, kind of areas of our lives. Uh, are you going to get a loan? Are you going to get access to a certain good or product? And kind of the new frontier is also the public sector kind of uh, embracing some of these automated decision-making systems. And part of it is being driven by austerity because they now have 
less resources and more need. And so rather than having a human have the difficult job of kind of prioritizing where resources are going, uh, a lot of them are turning to algorithms to help them focus their efforts. Give us an example of that. So, uh, you know, a very recent example, there was just a big expose this week in The Guardian that uh, Hackney Council, along with a few others, um, have started using a predictive uh, algorithm to help predict who is going to be susceptible for child abuse. Um, So again, on the face of it, that seems highly laudable. We should be making every effort to prevent as much uh, child abuse as possible. But evidence from the US where these systems are already in place shows that there's somewhat of a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy by the algorithm identifying a family or person as susceptible to future abuse, because then the whole surveillance system of the, uh, the state kind of takes over watching over the family, trying to prevent the abuse. Uh, and then normal things like, um, your child being injured and then being sent to school is viewed suspiciously. A missed doctor's appointment is viewed suspiciously. Uh, any kind of attempt by the parent to say this surveillance is inappropriate is viewed suspiciously and, and can often then end up in the child actually being taken away because all these things are viewed. And then, and then you get a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The algorithm thinks it's been correct when, in fact, it's right. created the situation that required the child to be removed. The answer isn't to get rid of algorithms, but is it to make algorithms better and to police them better? Yeah, I think there's a few things that need to happen. So one, we need accountability for those deploying these algorithms. Um, too often, Which doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, not, I mean, really. not, not in a robust way. So for the moment, uh, a company can deploy an algorithm. It doesn't need to understand what the algorithm is doing. It doesn't need to understand the training data on which it was set. And that's a really big a key point as well, especially, I mean, the other big one that people talk about is predictive policing. So a kind of proto-minority report. Uh, so it's not actually kind of predicting specific incidences of crime, but locations in which crime are occurring. And again, if you are training that algorithm on historical data, you're basically training it on hugely biased data, which uh, disproportionately affects poorer communities, people of color. Um, so you have to be very careful about how you use that historic data to then extrapolate into the future. And it's the same with a lot of these other algorithms. So you absolutely need a huge amounts of accountability for those people uh, implementing the algorithms. You need better transparency. It shouldn't be allowed to put an algorithm out into the world that you cannot explain, which is happening over and over again. And then you also, I mean, the other key point is then the algorithm is not making a decision about you or me, the physical you or me, but is actually making a decision based on a profile of you or me that has been curated by some corporation somewhere. And so where there's only one physical me, there are tens of thousands virtual me's on the internet. And some of those may be really rich profiles with years of surfing history, payment history, uh, your voting, all of this kind of stuff. Others will be just kind of single data points. And so we also have to figure out how are these algorithms deciding things about me and who is me in this digital world? So there's, there's a whole way in which we need to rethink about how we do these algorithms. And as you think about these issues, are there reasons to be positive? I mean, what, what could this properly managed within a proper framework? What could this enable us to do? I mean, I think it could be transformative. I I was first kind of inspired into this area by the book Inventing the Future, which Nick Cernicek and, and Alex Williams wrote, which I think, you know, was one of the the first kind of real visions of a kind of positive uh, 
progressive vision of what uh, a kind of automated future so could look like. like. They were advocating universal basic income and basically shorter uh, working, or, or, or no work to shorter working week, depending on how far sure. you kind of you kind of uh, extended their imagination. And some of that is definitely possible. I think you know there is huge potential. I think you know, and the self driving car one is a really great example. Um, if it weren't for the fact that a million people would lose their jobs and the fact that the economy can't cope with those million people being unemployed all within the space of a few years' time, we should be going for self-driving cars in the same way it was, you know, in a kind of moonshot. I mean, we could be going for it depending on what we do with the yes. money that is generated, who gets the profits, all so of yes, that So, yes, if stuff. we could resolve, I think if we could resolve that, what's going to happen to yeah. these million people, we should actually be going. So not only were, is, is a world of self-driving cars one where people are no longer being killed and maimed by these vehicles all over the place, although it won't eliminate accidents. Yeah. We will still have some accidents. It's also probably a world where we don't own our cars because there's not really yeah. any point. Uh, so instead of, a, you know, probably only have about 20% of the volume of cars in the world. So you have huge environmental benefits. You have huge material benefits. Uh, these cars are almost certainly all electric rather than petrol. So you have kind of resource benefits. The, these cars then are part of our smart grid, so they are downloading and uploading energy and kind of being our storage system. They'd be more traffic efficient, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, you'd redesign the whole t- city because all the cities are designed around the fact that we need a vehicle parked out in front. Uh, lanes are designed because we can't drive kind of quite straight. So there's, you know, lanes would be literally the size of a car. It, yeah, I mean, it would be so transformative in so many positive ways that, that we really should be going for it. But the the unemployment problem... And the fact that we don't currently have a solution for it, it, you know, kind of hampers it. But, you know, and we could go we could go sector by sector to look at it like that. There's huge wins to be had. But for the moment, the the way that that would manifest in the economy would be hugely damaging. And let's ask you the question that we asked Max, which is on the Jeffocracy. You know, Jeff appoints you as the uh, Minister for Technology or Secretary of State for Technology. What are the things that you would be looking to do? I mean, I think the first one that you would want to do is have that big conversation, although that seems like a you know overused word. But I think until we actually know what people want, um, and I think we were just doing, we, we were discussing this earlier at the, at the New Economics Foundation, you know, and finance was it's a really great analogy, economics as well, all subjects that people are hugely impacted by, and yet people kind of remove themselves from the conversation as I'm not qualified, I haven't got the degree, I leave this to experts when these conversations are too important for that. So we need to find a way to have that, you know, understanding of what people really want from this technology and where can we go so we can create that kind of shared positive vision. And I think that would really be the most critical one for me because without that, you're not bringing people with you and you're not really understanding where where we're supposed to go. And if people want to engage with the work that Neff is doing on this, because I know you're not just a think tank, you're also a tank that does stuff uh, as well. How would they do that? Uh, well, definitely go to the website, have a look at the work that we put out. But I think a lot of what we're trying to do around this area is trying to understand uh, also about how we might battle against some of the tech giants. So you're trying to do an alternative to Uber, I think I'm right. Yes. So that's one of the projects I've been working on uh, for the last year. We were originally going to try it and do it in London. I mean, it's interesting how kind of both regulation and the way the market works makes that almost impossible for kind of a bottom up platform co-op. So we're now trying to think about how, in fact, the answer to London and TfL may be some kind of public platform, making it more of a public institution uh, and extending the role of TfL. Because ultimately, I think also the interesting thing about, you know, where TfL and Uber are is, you know, TfL sometimes thinks that Uber is just a company that they're going to regulate. You know, Uber is absolutely competing for TfL's role. 
They want to be all of transport. They do, they are not content with just, you know, being the cars. So we're really interested in how we kind of undermine some of that power in tech, uh, how we get a people first kind of digital revolution, how we rethink about data, because we've got to remember that underlying all of this AI, it's all about data. Okay. Duncan McCann, thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? So, so my tendency with this stuff is to... Hide under the duvet. No, I, I, I think it's utopian rather than dystopian. That's not to say there yeah. shouldn't be, you know, a lot of thought put yeah. into. Because you always upgrade your iPhone. I do. And if you were kind enough to give me your old iPhone eight, I did do that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was too painful seeing you with that BlackBerry. Yeah, you're quite, you're quite sort of on it when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, just imagine like a a, a computer could theoretically if it became super intelligent more intelligent than us it could come up with the sort of perfect and fairest way to run an economy and taxation the funny thing is i come away feeling a bit skeptical about whether this agi is ever going to arrive i think it is but i don't know if it's going to be anytime soon yeah and my other overwhelming feeling is politics has got to get with the program because there are too many ignoramai like me ignoramai ignoramai ignoramuses uh who are sort of not you know, politics is just like either dazzled or sort of oppositional and doesn't think, well, how do we harness this? You know, really thinking it through and sort of gripping it, I think is really, I don't mean gripping it as in just telling everyone what to do, but I mean, working out a values framework for I think is really important. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
This comes from Lee Epstein, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I was really pleased that you did a whole show on the renewables revolution, as it shows that we're making progress in the fight against climate change. But it needs some joined up thinking to overcome the vested interests uh, and the large energy companies to make further and faster progress. Firstly, there was no mention by either of your guests about how much the growth of renewables is affecting retail prices. Bit of an elephant in the room. Over the past year, gas and electric prices have shot up. I'm assuming that this is largely a result of the fall in of the value in sterling um, after Brexit, as much as any rise in commodity prices. It's still not clear to me, though, whether in the medium to long term, renewables will cost the retail customer more, the same or less as renewables make up an increasing proportion of our energy mix. He says, the second point I'd like to make is that there is a huge opportunity to move billions of pounds currently invested in pensions away from fossil fuels into renewables to avoid the problem of trapped assets in the next 10 to 20 years. We've seen examples of this in the US, the NYC Pensions Fund, and in the UK, the Church of England. However, in order to do this in the UK, we need a stable environment for investment. Do you have a pension? No, I'm just hoping that I get bought by Google at some stage. Mm, okay, that's, that's <laughs> does, does that sound... I think he's got a good point yeah. about pension providers and, you know, engagement with pension providers. Mm. Because I think that there's a lot of power in people putting pressure on their pension advisors to invest in the right things. Lee adds, in the interest of disclosure, I have made some investments in renewable energy. Disclosure accepted. This comes from a nuclear perspective. John Christopher Waite. Dear Jeff and Ed and the rest of the team, I'm a big fan of your podcast and listen every week. I've recommended it to anyone that will listen to me. This is a bit of a meandering email, so I apologise for that, but it does end with a suggestion. So just skip to there if you don't want to read all my other blather. I've just been listening to your episode on renewable energy and was concerned at some of the statements your guests made with regards to the relative economics of nuclear and renewables. He's finishing a PhD on the radiation resistance of nuclear materials, taking an active interest in renewables, energy storage, and the complexities of a national grid. I f- his basic point is I fully support renewables within the UK and globally, and the shift to remove fossil fuels. But the main disagreement I have is that 100% renewable energy grid with no nuclear co- component will not be able to provide the energy densities required by population or industrial centres, and that you need a balance of renewables and nuclear. Uh, and so basically, he says the claim that future energy demands will be flexible, so we no longer need baseload power is ridiculous, he says. Uh, grouping nuclear with coal is also, uh, he's very doubtful about that, so that's ridiculous. Um, because he says, look, n- nuclear produces less CO2 than solar and is comparable to wind. Uh, a final thing your guest said that I objected to was their view on energy storage that would be relatively simple to implement large-scale solutions. An idea for an episode for you to look at is the current state of the nuclear industry. The current downsides are crazily high safety standards, under-informed politicians, not investing in R&D or longer time-scale projects, sorry, Ed, as well as an international unwillingness to deal with the waste problem head-on. A tangent to look at, or an episode on its own, would be nuclear fusion, which is a silver bullet for the words energy needs. However, this may be a bit too science-focused. I think if you look a, took a balanced look across fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear, energy storage, you could, would conclude that no one generator alone is perfect. What we need for a sustainable future is a mixed system, including all of the above, minus fossil fuels. Thank you to everyone who makes the podcast is honestly one of the things i look forward to on a monday long live the jeffocracy indeed when when we get a jeffocracy honors system sorted out he's uh he's 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 gonna be one of the first recipients so basically just praising you gets yeah, you an honor. absolutely Fair isn't enough. that how it works Fair enough. <laughs> 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by Amy Gledhill. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Nice well, thanks you. for coming in. You were just uh, telling us about the delightful sausage. I was indeed, yes. That's a double act and not a, a euphemism for anything. How, how many names did you go through before you got to the delightful sausage? <laughs> I think it was the first one. You have to be called something. And now I've ended up spending a lot of time dressed as a hot dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Who's, who's the other? I mean, are you two separate sausages? Are you two halves of the same sausage? Who is, who is your, your sausage pal? Um, so Christopher Cantrell is uh, the other stand-up in the double act, and he wears his nicest clothes. And I dress as the sausage. <laughs> so he's Can like, I give me some advice, which I think, you want, uh, in my experience, you should avoid pork derivative products. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I just sort of that. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't say it's for any particular reason. I just, oh, it, I just sort of one of those instincts. Just feel it in your. Yeah, world, exactly. Yeah. Okay. As well as being half of a delightful sausage, you're, you're also out doing stand up solo. You just did an Edinburgh show, and you're, you're out um, sporting Jen Brister on tour, who people may I remember am. was on the show a few weeks ago. I am indeed. So I do do stand up as well. Just straight stand up. No. No sausage. No sausage. <laughs> nothing to do with meat products at all. Just your normal stand-up, which is good. Uh, so you brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons yes. to be cheerful. What's your first one, Amy? Okay, so I think that you should learn how to do your tax return and about taxes in school. Mm. Oh, this is this is a, a good idea. Because, I mean, I, I'm quite clueless with this stuff. Are you good or bad with that kind of thing, then? Bad deeply deeply bad um and because a lot more people are doing freelance work these days aren't Definitely, they yeah and it's much more of a gig economy so i think we should set people up to have these skills from being a lot younger i mean i can't imagine looking forward to that lesson at school as a teenager <laughs> It's true. <laughs> We've got double taxation on a yeah. Friday afternoon. There is a serious point there, actually. You mentioned zero contract jobs and stuff. Like a lot of people are being plunged into these things without any real knowledge of what it is to be self-employed, just so that the big companies can abdicate the responsibility. Maybe it could be like combined with sex education or something to sort of make people <laughs> more and taxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously some saying about that. All right, uh, we'll have that. Um, what else have you got, Amy? There should be a publicly funded scheme where people down your street get together for a coffee and uh, have a chat about what skills they've got. So if there's a an elderly lady down your street who can't trim her edge, you can get somebody else. Tony can oh, do I it. I like Amy. I like Amy. So I, I could go <laughs> I down like there Amy. and say, I could make you a podcast about <laughs> exactly. edge trimming. Exactly. Yeah, but, you, but let's be honest, <laughs> Jeff, this is your biggest nightmare, isn't it? Well, in a couple of ways, because on one hand, it's a stark reminder of how unskilled I am as a human well, being. I, no, but I'm in that same category. Too. When the AI apocalypse comes, I mean, what, what will yeah. you and I be good for? That's really? true. But you're also, you don't like having to meet people, do you? Sort of integrating with people I find difficult as well. Okay, well, maybe somebody could help you with that, Jeff. I could say I've got no social skills. Could someone maybe come see Yes, me? yes. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. think it's a good idea. Yeah. Do you have like, any street parties or those kind of things on your street? There is a quite a f sort of successful street party in my street in London, which is called the York Rise Street Party. And do you um, take part in it? I open it. 
Oh, really? Oh, yes. Cool. You better watch out, though. What if Tom Hiddleston moved in? Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'd happily give way to him. Right, right. So you're you're for that one. I'm for that one. I, I sort of like the idea of it, but I wouldn't want to be forced to. You wouldn't want to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd like to look out of my window and see everybody have a lovely so, time uh, you can and it. and uh, and and swapping yeah. their skills. Yeah. I'd just like to sort of watch from a distance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Is that uh, is that allowed? I'll accept that, of course. <laughs> right. uh, what else you got, Amy? Uh, so this one's very close to my heart. So as a comedian, I spend a lot of time in motorway service stations at three in the morning. Morning. And I feel like there needs to be some sort of law on the signage in the motorway service stations to help people like me who are just looking for Greg's to not end up in a queue for petrol in the HGV lane. I mean, that is such a problem. Isn't it? <laughs> it really is. really hard to navigate your way around those those petrol stations. I completely agree. I think I've spent about a fortnight trying to get out of Stafford Services this week. <laughs> yeah. It's so confusing. Mm. Motorway service stations are so much better than when I was a kid. Do you think? Oh, I think what they were worse. Well, I don't think they were more confusing, but I think it was okay. the, it was kind of like the food was more rubbish. Oh right! Wow. I mean, that's honestly, grim. It's like honestly, it's like miles, <laughs> miles better. That's so great. Honestly, I can't tell you how much they've got better. Do don't you, have you a, think? Well, I, I'm seldom in a motorway service. No, station, but you must have so been as a kid. I, I have been, at, yeah, and they were grim places. Yeah. But um, do you know, as, as people who use them somewhat regularly, do you each have a favourite? A hundred percent. I don't really. T-Bay. Was that? T-Bay on, on the, the M6. M6. Oh, I would go on holiday to T-Bay <laughs> services. Well, you see what I mean? I just remember we used to, because we used to live in Leeds when I was a kid, and we'd drive from Le- Leeds to London, or London to Leeds, and we'd stop at Leicester Forest service station. Honestly, it was like, shriv- <laughs> it was shriveled sausages. I mean, honestly, it was like, it's my, it was my earliest experience with pork derivative products. Uh, and, you know, it was just, I mean, it, all I can remember is the shriveled sausages. I definitely feel they've yeah, improved. They, they must have. There was a, an article that the Road Safety Markings Association put out and they gave all the services in the UK a mark out of 60 on whether they're mm. visible, easy to use and logical. Yeah. And 12 of them scored zero out of 60. Wow. Yeah. And I think one of them near Leicester was that one. I wonder if it was the same one. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. What's it it called? The Road Safety Markings Association. Yes. I mean, Jeff, I think that is a job for you. I mean, if not the Jeffocracy. What sort of touring motorway? Chair of the Road Safety Markings (laughs) Association. I think you'd bring sort of Elan and sort of, you know, kind of, you know, you put it on the map. If anyone from the RSMA is listening, maybe they will get in touch. And they need an ambassador. It's a trade association, actually, for companies involved with road safety markings. It represents 90% of the road markings industry by volume in the uk i mean maybe there's a yeah. breakaway people <laughs> people's front of road safety I just, markings I just, association <laughs> i just want to say i've got several hundred instagram followers so if they do want to have me as a brand ambassador here we are rsma critical of motorway service stations there you go 12 yep you're so right 12 of the service areas surveyed colesworth leicester and then various others gained a zero score Common failures in the league table included worn-out pedestrian crossings, no dropped curb, walkways littered with refuse bins, trees and advertising hoardings, and a zebra crossing leading walkers into manoeuvring traffic. <laughs> RSMA National Director George Lee said, Drivers encouraged to break their journey and may be stopping while under pressure of a long period of driving. 
They switched from a relatively orderly road with single-direction traffic and few distractions to a barrage of advertising direction signs and other drivers in a state of confusion and tension. Once they leave the car, the rules of the road are abandoned, are left to weave <laughs> among rows of parked cars and moving traffic to reach the facilities. For many, this makes taking a break a stressful event. George, you're, 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 you speak for the nation. We're quite close to John Major Traffic Cones Hotline here, aren't we? Yes, and that was a huge success, yeah, exactly. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll definitely have that. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it, would, it would be a unifying There policy. must be somebody from the Road Safety Markings Association listening who will make you a patron <laughs> or a brand ambassador. Amy, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank, thank you for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So last week you told me that as an anniversary present for Sarah, you were going to change your name to Jeff Baron Lloyd. I told you you should call yourself Baron Jeff Lloyd. We looked it up. It turned out to be completely doable. Did you follow my advice? I ignored your suggestion. Mm. I took it, you know, I know you strongly were in favour of it, but I took that as advisory rather than binding. Binding. Uh, but I did change my name by default. I have, I have now got a middle name for the first time in my life. Well, how do you feel? I, I feel good. Sarah was very pleased. Wasn't she, she was. So we went out for a meal. Yeah. And I, I brought the certificate with me that the solicitor had given me. And at some point in the meal, I... Uh, brandished it. I did. Brandished it. And she got quite emotional because I was worried. Because our guest last week, the comedian yeah. Tanya, I said, um, we were talking about it before we switched yeah. the microphones on. She said, well, I hope you've got uh, another present as well. And you did buy her another present. A terrarium. Yeah. which is it's a, a magnificent terrarium. Which as is well, what, just to explain what that is, but I didn't know what it was. A glass dome with a bonsai tree and some plants in it. But 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 isn't it you, magnificent? It is magnificent. Did you say to her that I said that you should call yourself Baron Jeff Lloyd? I did, yes. And I think her opinion was similar to mine. Oh. We were of, of one mind, husband and wife, mm. on on that. It probably isn't a good idea to have a name for the sake of novelty value. She could be called Baron Sarah Baron. <laughs> now that I'm into. That I'm into. I think there's something going for that. Should we thank uh, our guests? Yeah, we should. We'd like to thank uh, Max Tegmark and Duncan McCann. And thanks so much to Amy Gledhill. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And the uh, the artwork was designed by... Emily Power. He's been Marvin the Paranoid Android. He's been C3PO. <laughs> and these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 